Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, welcome. Thank you. It's and, great uh, to be here. You know, we look forward to today because we're continuing your series on heaven, which I think is probably revealing a lot of things about heaven that people have never considered before, yeah. and, but maybe particularly today. So what are you going to be talking to us about? Yeah, a lot of stuff we don't consider. I mean, yeah. we agree with that. Um, there's so much to study. There's so much to learn. But we're going to talk about the physicality of heaven, which is so important to finally grasp in our minds and the idea of a new heaven and a new earth, because we read that phrase, we ought to know what we're talking about. So what we're gonna be talking about is heaven is a real place. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, join us in just a few minutes as Dr. Neufeld continues his series on heaven right here on Truth and Life Today. I wonder what you imagine or think about when you think about heaven. Now, we've been doing a series on heaven, and you've probably heard me say that there is a, a gradiated steps in which we go through before we come to our final reward. You know, first of all, we are born anew, and so, and therefore, the life to come already lives within us even now. Then when we die, uh, we go into what has been called the intermediate state. We are in the Lord's presence, but we're awaiting the final consummation of all things. When Christ returns, we receive our new resurrected bodies, uh, but there will be a 1,000-year reign, which is often called the millennium, in which Christ reigns here on earth. And then after that, time comes to an end. We come to a time in which is the final judgment in which the entire human race stands before God. And those of us who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb will then enter into what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. And it's that final state that I want to address today. What is our final estate as believers? What are we shooting at? What are we looking forward to? And I'm going to say it's not just idle speculation. There's so much stuff in the Bible that speaks about our final state. But let me also give you this word. We know for a certain that we can be faithful on this earth because we have our hope set on the world to come. But what is that world to come? So let me describe it to you. You know, it's very interesting to me that when you hear popular misconceptions about heaven, people will talk about anything from, I don't know, golf courses to sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for all of eternity to individuals talking about a, a worship service that never ends and just keeps on going. But if you look at what images you have in our television screens, you know, heaven is often depicted as this place where, you know, all the walls are white. There's a kind of a white fog that goes up to people's ankles. Everyone's dressed in white. And then you got these people that are looking forward to go back to earth because that's where all the interesting stuff and the excitement happens. So here's my question about heaven. Whatever image that you have in mind about heaven, here's what I'm guessing. Your image about heaven might not be an image that is vivid with colors. It might not be an image in which you have mountains and waterfall and uh, glorious various geographical locations and, and uh, you know, the cry of an eagle in the sky and, and all of those things that make this earth so fascinating. Many of us simply remove all of that when we talk about heaven. And is it any wonder at all why a great many of us don't look forward to heaven. We have such an, and pardon the pun here, but we have so many whitewashed images of heaven that don't reflect the biblical account. So where do we begin? Well, let me begin by quoting to you from one theologian in a very famous systematic theology. And this author writes, 
While heaven is both a place and a state, it is primarily, he writes, a state. And I've got to listen to that and say, what in the world can that possibly mean? You know, I'm from greater Vancouver, so what if I were to say to you, you know, Vancouver is both a place and a state, but it's primarily a state, like it's primarily a state of mind. You, you'd, be, you'd be right in asking, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's this kind of vagary around heaven that lacks a physical sense of the place that has left so many people scratching their heads and not longing for it. So let's ask the basic question, and it's a question that I'm going to address now for some time. It's this, is heaven a real place or not? That's the first question. So many others to ask, but let's address that one first. Now, I want you to imagine a Jesus after he has been raised from the dead. He's not raised as a state of mind, but he's raised physically, reality. The disciples have been for the, to the empty tomb and they find that his body is not there anymore. And then finally he greets them and he says, you know, put your hands in my hands and see that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So then he spends 40 days with the disciples. Sometimes they go fishing. And sometimes he's addressing 500 people and more at the same time. But at the end of the 40 days, he gathers them together on the Mount of Olives, which would have overlooked Jerusalem. He's not there as a, you know, as a shadow or as a spirit. He's a real physical presence. And then as we read through the book of Acts, it says in Acts 1 verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, what are they supposed to think? They've got to think that he is moving from one location to another. See, do you notice that when Jesus left this earth, he didn't dematerialize. He actually lifted up from the ground and they've got to believe that he was traveling to some place. And that's the whole issue behind it. Now, he doesn't look further beyond that and look at verse 10. It says, and while they were gazing into heaven, that is, while the disciples are looking up at him, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again. But notice that he was taken up from you into heaven. You watched him go to a physical location. So I want you to imagine going to the airport and, and dropping off your loved ones. You know, often when I go to the airport on some of my trips, I'll go to an airport, which is a small one in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Just, I love small airports and you can walk right outside the door and you can watch the plane taking off if you want to. If you put your loved ones on a plane, you know that they're still somewhere. You can see the plane taking off and they're going and you expect that they're going to a physical location. The disciples would have thought precisely that. They would have thought that Jesus is traveling from earth to a place called heaven. And so the real question that we need to ask ourselves is where was he going? They must have assumed it was a physical place because as the Bible describes heaven, it always describes it physically. Jesus traveled physically from one location to another. Just where did he go?
When we talk about heaven, and we recognize that heaven must be in some physical place, it's very natural to ask, well, then where is it? And I don't want to give the impression that we could actually get on a spaceship and actually travel from where we are to heaven. I remember a number of years ago, I had a conversation with someone who said, uh, I think astronomers have found the actual location of heaven. And I just simply smiled and I said, I don't think that we can get there from here. Now, it might be that heaven exists in another dimension. I don't know exactly how we are to think about its location, but it's clearly a location. I'm convinced that we can't get there from where we are, but Jesus was able to travel to it. Even as much as I can travel from Vancouver and go all the way to Montreal, Jesus traveled from the Mount of Olives and went physically to a place called heaven. Now, before I go on, let me just entertain one of the difficulties that sometimes people have. We know that Jesus is both fully man and he's fully God. And as fully God, uh, we know that he is everywhere at all times. I mean, that's one of the attributes of God. God is everywhere present. And we know, for instance, in uh, the book of John, uh, Jesus speaks to Philip and says, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. So I I've been watching you, even though I was physically in another location. That is, we are to think about Jesus as fully human and that he is in one place at one time and yet fully divine. He is everywhere present. So we might ask ourselves, why does Jesus have to travel to heaven? I mean, after all, he already fills heaven and earth as God. But we also know that Jesus is fully human. And as a human, he did travel from earth to heaven. And we also know that he gave his disciples some very specific instructions about going there. Listen to John chapter 14, and I'm reading from verse one all the way to verse three. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before his crucifixion. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house, are many rooms. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version and it translates this word as rooms and maybe that's getting the wrong impression because when we hear that, we think about a house somewhere that's got a lot of bedrooms in it and you know, one of those bedrooms is for us and maybe you know, the father has a really large grand place where there's lots of rooms all through the house but I think that gets the wrong idea. The idea really is the idea of one of these massive villas. I mean, you can been in places around the world where there's a gate along a street, you walk through the gate, and all of a sudden there opens up this, you know, courtyard and buildings all around the place. Well, we need to multiply that in size many ways and think about a massive piece of property in which there are all sorts of little villas or little houses all over the place. And Jesus is saying, you know, to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a specific place for each one of you. Now, what are they to think when you hear, they hear him say that? I mean, they must have thought in very physical terms because that's how Jesus uh, thinks about that. Now, let me continue to read. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So you've got to know that when he left this earth and went to heaven, he went there to prepare a place. Now, one of the questions that sometimes gets asked is, I mean, why does it take him so long to prepare a place? And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know that God could have spoken in a second 
created all of the heavens and the earth, and yet we do have in the book of Genesis six successive days in which God does his creative work. We've got to believe that Jesus is saying right now, I am creating a space, a dwelling place, and I am taking my time in doing it. And again, we're speaking about very physical ways. In my father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. So again, we can't think of heaven as a state of mind. We have to think about it as a place that actually exists a real location. Now, after the final judgment, Every single individual who has put their hope in Christ, who's had their sins forgiven, will be ushered into this place where Christ has been preparing a personalized dwelling for every single one of us. Now, we know this place is not just called heaven. I know in our nomenclature, you know, we think about earth and we think about heaven, but whenever we read through the text of scripture, it speaks about a new heaven and a new earth. I give you a number of examples of that. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. That is, the former things about this earth. They're so eclipsed and overshadowed by what is to come that we'll hardly even bear it in mind again. Isaiah 66, verse 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So we get the idea that the new heavens and the new earth is not temporary like this one. I mean, we know that everything in this order of things eventually passes away. Even though the earth seems so secure, uh, we know that it is slowly but slowly unwinding and one day will be no more, but that's not so for the new heavens and the new earth. We also know that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter writes, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says, we're waiting for that. That's our anticipation so that when we think about our final dwelling place where righteousness dwells, that is where sin never has access again, that the hope of every single believer is not just to go to heaven. It is a new heavens and a new earth, and it's that which we must understand. We've been talking about the fact that the final hope of the believer is not just to go to some erythral place called heaven, uh, which doesn't seem real to us, but to a real physical location. And the Bible actually doesn't speak about as just being in heaven. It speaks about a new heaven and a new earth. So let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse one, it says, then I saw, John writes, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now, I know that this phrase, the sea was no more, has led to endless speculation, but uh, let me give you my understanding of what it means when it says the sea was no more. 
John was writing this at a time when most of the mariners in his day always sailed within the sight of land. Uh, That is, they didn't have the navigation equipment to go out too far, so they always made sure that they stayed within some kind of a bearing in which they could catch um, where they were. And uh, we know that the idea of crossing an ocean was just not there. Um, So the sea represents, at least in John's day, an incrossable barrier. You can't get across it. And so when John says here, the sea is no more, he's saying that the incrossable barrier that exists between heaven and earth is no more. Somehow it's been taken away and heaven and earth have been brought together. That's the idea that's behind that. So keeping that in mind, let me take you to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start to read from verse 3 and following. Uh, Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, Peter seems to be talking about a number of phases of existence. He says, first of all, the world that once existed was a world that was untouched by the fall. And then it was a world that became touched by the fall in which disease and death and and sinfulness was everywhere felt. And then came the time, says Peter, when the earth was deluged and he's talking about the time of Noah. I mean, the Bible says that wickedness was so great in that time that life was hardly worth living and that God brought destruction to that ancient world. And then, says Peter, we have the present time in which we're living and we're waiting for another destruction. And it's a destruction that will come by fire. And when the fire comes, it's going to burn everything else up. So there's been a debate among Bible teachers and the debate goes like this. Does that mean that the earth as we know it is going to be completely destroyed, much like a house is burned down in a fire? That's the question. You know, is it all going to burn, baby? And yet... There are those that speak about the earth going on. So, for instance, let me quote to you from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. You remember, it's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It is always there in the Bible that the ultimate destiny of the redeemed is that we inherit the earth. So the question is, is it this earth or is this one completely burned up and is it an earth to come? Well, let me quote to you from one Bible teacher who says this. He says, God hangs on to his fallen original creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. Now, if you know 2 Peter, 2 Peter says that everything is going to be burned up with fire. So it's not going to be anymore. So how do we put these two contradictory things together? 
Jesus promising us that we'll inherit the earth, and at the same time, uh, we have these Bible passages that seem to indicate that the earth is going to be burned up. What do we make of all of that? And I think here's the answer. Think about Jesus crucified on a cross. He hangs there on a cross. His body has been whipped. He has blood loss in which he finally succumbs to all the wounds that he has endured and the torture that he's endured. He's laid into a tomb, and then three days later, he rises from the dead. The disciples go to the tomb, and where is the body? It's gone. It's been raised. And yet, when they encounter Jesus, do they find an emaciated body of Jesus? No, they, they find a resurrection body. That is, the body of Jesus that once existed has been transformed. See, that's just like what's going to happen to this earth. Romans 8.21 says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This earth is going to perish, but it will rise again, just like Jesus rose again. That's our future. See, whenever you think about the life to come, think about the interesting features of life on this earth. Think about waterfalls and think about eagles crying out in the sky and think about the things that we discover in this world. Well, in a very real way, that's what the Bible is teaching us about the life to come. The earth will be consumed and then somehow out of the consumption of this earth will be a new heaven and a new earth. We're gonna need more time to understand that, but at this point in time, let's just agree on this. Heaven is a real place. Heaven actually consists of a new heaven and a new earth. We will be receiving new bodies in which we will live on an earth which is filled with the glory of God and the, 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 the uh, distance between heaven and earth is going to be taken away. It will be erased forever. It would seem that we move from heaven to earth with ease. That's the promise that we have in the scripture. Well, welcome back to Truth and Life today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, interesting. I tell you, my mind was going all over the place as you were speaking, uh, but I'm just wondering about maybe some of the, the general strokes here. Uh, when I think about heaven, I think about a lot of things. Uh, and it usually ends up with questions like, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm going to have to leave that to God. But there's so many physical things that are being spoken about in Scripture. Why is it so important that there's physicality in respect to heaven? I think one of the questions that many of us have is, uh, you know, what does it mean to be human? And when I go to heaven, do I lose my humanity? Mm -hmm. And my humanity is essentially a physical humanity. I mean, I interact with you and with the world around me, sights and sounds and smells and thoughts, uh, learning, growing. I mean, that's the physicality of my life. So if I were to think that that would come to an end, that would be a, that'd be a profound loss indeed. Yeah. But we don't lose that. that. That, I think, is why that's so important. So there is still a sense of, uh, I will not lose myself. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, sometimes people talk about heaven as I'm going to know everything when I get there. And I'll be speaking about that in future episodes, but I'm not so sure we're going to know everything. 
I think learning, growing, we are finite beings that go on for eternity, but we are finite physical beings that go on for eternity. So what do we look forward to next time? Yeah, we're gonna to continue to talk about the new heavens and the new earth, and we're gonna to try to define how do we understand new heavens, new earth, and so I'll try to flesh that out just a bit. Thanks so much, Sean, thanks for your message today, and remember to join us right here next week on Truth and Life Today. 